The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. 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 Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right. You can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com. And there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side is Bradley's show from yesterday. So if you missed that, um, you want to check that out. Uh, and you can do so up until 3 p.m. Eastern, at which time he'll be live in that little area right there. And, um, yeah, if you want to see it after that, you got to go to the Rumble channel, Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble. Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow it up whatever device you got, and then look for the Rumble icon in the bottom right-hand corner. You can click on that. You can join us on that channel on the particular stream that we're on. And in the chat, and we got a lot of friends in there this morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. Great to have you in there. And um, I'm very encouraged because sometimes the conversations are great. And then sometimes everybody focuses on one little thing <laughs> that I say, or even that I don't say, and the whole conversation goes off. So I, I do go back and read. If I'm doing a monologue, I just it's hard for me to read all the, the things here. But I do keep an eye on it. Uh, but I go back and I read some of your comments. And Boy, there's a lot that I want to address from yesterday, but but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, we are streaming live to Rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live, uh, so you can pick us up there. We're also on BeforeIt'sNews.com at the top of the page, and we thank those guys for giving us a shot or a spot there on Before It's News. Right up under where we're streaming live, sign up for our email newsletter again once a day. That includes the morning show archive in your email inbox. And um, yeah, sign up for that. And if you do it before 7 o'clock tonight, you should get it this evening, your first one this evening. If you want our ministry email, go to sonsoflibertyradio.com. You can sign up for that on the front page. That goes up to um, uh, that goes out once a week on Saturdays. So be sure to, to to check that out as well. And you'll see what the ministry does. Okay, uh, exclusive content on that. One last thing: if you agree with our message, you'd like to help keep us out there. There's a donate button at the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com. Click on that, make a one-time donation. You can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of liberty, and we do appreciate you very, very much. Um, there, now, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a little different radio show. 
I'm going to be reading to you a chapter from a book written in the 1800s, and it's concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, before I get to that, though, let me let me just you know take on a couple of things that were that were made mention of yesterday. And I had somebody who came in uh, to the the comment section of the video yesterday, and I appreciate the questions. Look, I, I'm not I'm not bothered by people asking questions. That's how I learn. I mean, if they're if they're not if they're not calling me names and stuff, and they're just saying, "Hey, I have a problem here with this. This doesn't sound right and stuff." I don't I don't have a problem with that. I I ask them questions back to get them to think for themselves through this through the stuff that we talked about like yesterday. So these were a couple that came up and I'm just going to address these just really quick just to kind of give you a, a sense of of some things that go on. So you know, I asked about time text. I asked even when we were going through, you know, I asked that or pointed that out the bookends of the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 1 verse 3 22 verse 6, the bookends of Revelation all say it's about to take place. It's it's at hand. It's shortly to come to pass. And I find it incredible when you point that out to people, this is what they do. And look, I'm not blaming the guy for, for or the woman. I'm not sure. I don't want to offend anybody with the wrong thing there of, of who I'm addressing, but there there's different things they'll they'll jump in and when you do that they jump completely out of the context and you know i've said over and over and over and over and over again you stay in the context if you don't stay if you have to jump outside of the context okay if you have to jump outside of it to deal with the text now i'm not saying you may not, there may be allusions to things in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and you say, okay, the reason I know this is that is because the Old Testament referenced this kind of stuff or it used this kind of language to deal with it. So there was a couple of those. So <clears throat> one of the one of the things that was said was the show talked about the abomination of desolation, the ending of the daily sacrifice, the tribulation Jesus spoke would come. Matthew 24 talked about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving light. Such a phenomenon would have surely been documented by hundreds of writers who were eyewitnesses. What historical evidence is there of the sun, moon going dark? So he's asking a legitimate question. I, I get what he's saying. These are things that I say do not mesh with the idea of all prophecies being completed. The Son of Man was prophesied to return to earth one more time to gather his people. And I beheld, and then he quotes uh, Revelation 6, 12. So he went out of the context of Matthew 24 into Revelation 6. Okay, do you see what's going on there? Now, I understand there's a lot of teachers and preachers who play Bible ping pong like that. I'm not one of them. I used to be. That's how I was taught to look at Scripture until I started looking at context. Why do we do with God's Word what we will never do with any other book? Let me ask you something. Do you take a letter from somebody... And then you, if you even get letters anymore, I guess most people get emails, but sometimes you get letters from people. You take an email from somebody and they write to you, you know, in 1999. And they're writing to you about a particular thing. And then they go and they write to you in 2009. And they write to you about a different issue. And then do you start mixing their words up together as though they're talking about the same thing. Do you do that? No, nobody does that. You'd be taking that person out of context. Well, why do people feel like they have the liberty to take out of context God's word and mix and mash it with other places? 
especially in things that aren't even talking about the same thing. Why did they do that? Because they've been taught to do it. They've been taught to do it by preachers who haven't been faithfully expounding the scriptures. That's what the problem is. So what I asked, what I asked this person was, if you understand the, the God's judgments in the Old Testament, you would understand the language being used. He's not talking about the stars literally falling out of the sky or the sun literally being darkened or the, or the, the moon failing to give us any of this kind of stuff. He's given a picture and he uses this and I'll give you some references because I'm, I'm wanting to get to this, this reading of this text because it's going to take me all of the show and maybe a little bit more. And I want to make a point before I do that. So you keep it in mind. Isaiah 13, 10. Okay. Read that. Joel 2, 10. Amos 8, 9. Ezekiel 32, 7. Joel 3, 15. And 2, 31. Psalm 97, 5. And there, are, there is a multitude of others where it talks about sun, moon, stars. And it gives that illustration. And it's talking about certain destructions of certain cities and empires and things of that nature. So if that's helpful, understand those words that were written back there were the words of Jesus through his prophets. Okay? Just, just so you, you have an understanding of what's going on there. Um, there's also the message of when I use the time text. And um, when I asked, you know, what do these things do? And so then you get the response out of Peter or Psalm 90, uh, where it says, well, a day with the Lord is a thousand years. So you again, you jump out of the context of what's being referenced and you run somewhere else and you make this decoration. Well, a thousand years with the Lord is as is, is a day. OK, well, I assume this person probably believes in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ that you find in Revelation 20. And not that it's not remembering that that's apocalyptic literature, that there's all kinds of numbers that are used to signify completeness or the fullness or whatever the case may be. And I said, well then, do you believe there's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ or should we understand this as a day? When he says it's a thousand-year reign, why can't I do the same thing you did? Jump out and say, well, his thousand-year reign is a day, right? I mean, that makes sense if you're going to be consistent, but that's not a proper hermeneutic. And by the way, that's, I know that's a big word for some people. It just means the, 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 thing that you, the, the way you come to the scriptures, the way you look at the scriptures, how you're addressing whatever literary fashion it is, if it's poetry, if it's historical narrative, um, you know, whatever the case may be, if it's a didactic teaching that's going on, you, you interpret it that way. You don't interpret a poem the same way you interpret historical narrative. There are different literary fashions or genres. And so that's where we get the term literal. You interpret the Bible literally according to whatever kind of literature you're reading in the scripture. That's what that means doesn't mean this wouldn't literal sense, okay? So these are just a couple of things, and, and I'm grateful that um, uh, the person you know, brought the questions up. I, I think they're good, because when you're asking these kinds of questions, you're looking for an answer. Okay, I'll listen to you. Can you give me some answers here? Can you, give me, can you get my thinking on the right track of where it should be? And so um, I appreciate the questions very much. I really do. And I don't mind people challenging things. That's great. Um, you know, iron sharpens iron, does it not? And so we can we can benefit 
if we're respectful. Now, if you're going to come in and call me names, well, then you're you're engaged in logical fallacies and you're going to get it right back. OK, um, but if you're if you're sincere about it, then, yeah, that's great. OK, so I want to start off with this and then I want to take you over. And <clears throat> I want to read this one chapter out of this book. And I've, I've told you about the book before, but I want to read you this chapter because I, I think it kind of sets the stage. And I, I'm really starting to think that what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go through because I watched the chat yesterday. And I watch people in there going, well, maybe the phone's the mark of the beast. And maybe, maybe this is that. Maybe that. Look, <laughs> I've already been through what the mark of the beast was. Okay. There's a show on that. You can find it. Um, what was the mark of the beast? That's the title of it. You can see it. You can see what it was. And then I tell you there's application because there's numbers of marks of different beasts throughout history. We've seen some of it here recently. Take the shot. Wear the mask or you don't work or you don't, you don't. And if you don't want to work, you're not going to buy or sell. I mean, that's literally a mark of a beast. That's an application from that. Same thing happens with a social security number for, for the most part. Some people work without them. But most people have to get them if they're going to go get a job somewhere. It's a mark of the beast, of a beast. Let me sit, put it that way. The American beast. But I don't hear anybody talking about that the way they were about the shots or the mass, but that's that's a reality that goes on. So I want to take you back to Matthew 24. You know, the Bible says that two or three witnesses confirm the matter, right? Old and New Testament, you want to confirm something, two or three witnesses. So I want to take you to two witnesses, Matthew and Luke. In their Olivet Discourse, this is what they say. This is Jesus in Matthew 24. I want you to listen to what he says. Verily, or truly, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till, when, till some of these things be fulfilled, a partial part of this be fulfilled, all these things be fulfilled. All these things. And the generation isn't talking about a kind or an ethnicity or anything like that. It's talking about the generation of people that are hearing his words. In fact, his disciples go on to speak to that generation and say, save yourself from this evil and wicked generation, right? Why? It's the generation that killed the son of God. Wasn't it bad enough that their fathers killed the prophets? They're going to kill the son of God. They're a wicked and evil generation deserving of the fullness of the wrath of God poured out with that mixture. And this is why John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. Because it was coming. Okay. Now I want to stop and I want to ask you, well, let me read Luke's because this is the second one. His is also in verse 32 of chapter 21. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till what? All be fulfilled. So there's what we have here is we have two eyewitnesses. Actually, we have an eyewitness, Matthew, and then we have Luke, who is a journalist. Uh, he's a doctor, but he's a journalist. He's recounting these things for Theo Theophilus so that his faith will be sure. And that's why he writes the letter of the Gospel of Luke, and that's why he follows up with the letter that's the book of Acts. To Theophilus. So I have this question I want to ask you. Is Jesus a liar? 
Well, Tim, I don't see these things coming out. You know, one of the person said, hey, do you got any secular kind of thing that shows me? Yeah, read Josephus. He tried to say it's a, a second, a, a secret second coming of Christ. There was nothing secret about 70 AD. Nothing at all. Nothing secret about Jesus' coming then. Let me hit just a couple of things here before we get into this. And yeah, I guess we're going to go over a little bit today. But just to kind of set this, is Jesus a liar when he said all these things are going to be fulfilled in that generation? Was he lying or was he telling the truth? I'll leave that up to you. I believe he was telling the truth. Okay? And that's what you have to ask. Even when you can't sort every little thing at the moment, you have to ask, is Jesus telling me the truth? And I, for the most part, at least the people who are in here in the chat, I know they'll say, no, Jesus is always telling the truth. He is the truth. They would agree with that. Okay, well, if that's the case, this is what he says. All those things he talked about in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, all of them were to come to pass, they were to be fulfilled in that generation. Okay? I think that's pretty simple. I think that's pretty simple to understand. So I want to do this. Let me read these passages. It'll go real quick, and then we're going to get into this, this section of this book. Okay. This is Matthew 26. And here's what happens. Verse 62, or excuse me, verse 61. They're, they're bringing the case against Christ. And said this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That's what they're saying Jesus said. And he did say that. And he was referencing the temple of his body, not the temple that was standing, although he's going to do that too. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? Because Jesus was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth, is what the prophet said. What is it that these witnesses, which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, listen to what he says. He's not talking to you and me. Keep that in mind. He's talking to the high priest who's living at that time. Thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter ye, or you, you boy, you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And how did the, the chief priest respond to that? He rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What did he understand Jesus to be saying? That he is the coming judge. That he is God. He's the same God who came in clouds in the Old Testament to bring judgment. And you can read it in Egypt. You can read it about Babylon. How did God come? He come in thick clouds. He came in dark clouds. Jesus is using the same language he's used in the Old Testament. Okay, and they and then it, they said he's he's guilty of death. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying I'm God and I'm coming to judge you guys, and you're going to see me coming in clouds. By the way, keep that cloud thing in mind when Jesus ascends, and he says that uh, the angels t tell the disciples he's going to come in like manner, and everybody goes, oh, what well, means he's coming in the flesh? Well, no, he went up and a cloud received him. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to see me coming in the clouds. Same thing. Mark 13, here's what he says. And this is from the Olivet Discourse there. 
The stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This is the Olivet Discourse. Same thing as Matthew 24 that we read a minute ago in Luke 21. Then we go over to Mark 16, or excuse me, Mark 14, 62. Here's what we read. Again, this is the thing. He's standing before the high priest. Again, two or three witnesses confirm the matter, right? Old and New Testament, the word of God. And Jesus said, this is verse 62 of Mark chapter 14. And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Matthew 24, verse 30. Let's, let's back up just a little bit. <clears throat> verse 27. This kind of leads up to it. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud. By the way, just, just a side note here. The tribes of the earth. Now, if you look up the word earth here, you'll notice it also can be understood as land. And if you understand the tribes of the land mourn, that would lead you back to understanding where this judgment is going to be focused on, and that is the land of Israel, the tribes of Israel. But he says, See the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And remember, Matthew 24, he says, All this is going to come on this generation, and, and it's all going to be fulfilled in this generation. Is Jesus a liar, or is he not? Luke 21, again, Olivet Discourse. Verse 27, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And he tells them, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, your, look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Again, he's not talking to me and you, he's talking to them. And then he turns and he says, and he spake to them a parable. Not to us, to them. And when he's talking about the fig tree here, he's not, he doesn't have Israel in mind like a modern day Israel. What he has is just the same way that when you go out, any of you, got, any of you guys got fig trees, you see the leaves come on that fig tree because in the winter, it's just a bunch of scraggly, you know, limbs that are growing out of this thing. But then it puts on leaves and you know when it puts on leaves, he says, you know that summer is nigh, right? And so, Pretty soon, you're going to have that sweet smell of those figs growing, and you're going to have something to eat. He says, in the same manner, when you see the things I'm talking about, you'll know that it's near, that it's at hand. He's not talking about somewhere, you know, this Hal Lindsey kind of stuff about 1948. It's nothing about that. Nothing about that at all. It's about what comes on that generation. And then this final one, Matthew 16, verse 28. And remember, he's got the disciples with him. And he says this, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here, some standing with him, which shall not taste death 
till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Hmm. Was Jesus a liar? Were there some standing with him who didn't taste death till they saw him coming in his kingdom? Yep, there sure were. There sure were. So I wanted to do that to sort of set the stage. Now, this is a book that I've talked about before. Um, <clears throat> it's called Evidence for the Truth of the Christian Religion. It's by Alexander Keith. Um, he was a, a, a preacher and writer in um, the 19th century. He said, it said that this is the book that converted Chief Justice John Marshall to the Christian faith. That's what it says. But he, he has several chapters in here, and I'll, I'll drop a link in here if uh, you guys are interested in picking it up. I highly recommend it, and you can get like a cheap copy. This thing is a hardback, and you can get a cheap copy for like four bucks. And it's worth the money. It really is. If you don't have it in your library, you really ought to put this in your library um, because it's, it's fantastic. Okay, and what we did when I was at Nice and Council uh, dot com, what we did was we did a video. I never even saw the finished product, but you can probably find it from somebody online. I think it was called AD seventy or seventy AD. I don't know. Look for it and see what's made by Nice and Council, and that'll be it. And basically, we took what I'm going to read to you today. So bear with me. I know this isn't going to be the exciting show, and you know the the pomp and everything that some people can do with their videos. I I just I don't have it. So I got to trust that the Spirit of God opens our understanding that people are hungry for what's going on. This is Alexander Keith's second chapter, or chapter three, I'm sorry, not the second one. I thought it was the second one. Of his book, These Evidences of Christianity, or the Claims of the Bible. This is chapter three. It's called Prophecies Concerning the Destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we're going to go over. I, I can't help that. I'm sorry. I wanted to kind of get those things out to show you there are multiple witnesses in the script or from the scriptures. And by the way, Bible wasn't written by one man. It was written by a, a plethora of men over 1,500 years. And so when they're saying these things, they're coming as witnesses to the Christ. That's what they're doing. They're witnessing to the, the Messiah who was to come, Jesus, right? So I'm going to show this to you on the screen, those of you who are viewing. And I'm also going to be just reading it, okay? And again, I welcome questions that people have. If you're sincere, I welcome them. Now, I won't be able to see many of these in the chat, so forgive me. If you ask something in the chat, I'm not going to see it. Put it in the comment section, okay? And I'll try to answer. All, sometimes I'm, I'm busy and I can't answer everything, but I'll do my best to try to. If I don't, I'll try to bring them up on the radio, okay? Happy to do that. Um, so let's get started here. This is Chapter 3, Prophecies Concerning the Destruction of Jerusalem. The commonwealth of Israel, from its establishment to its dissolution, subsisted for more than 1,500 years in delivering their law. Moses assumed more than the authority of a human legislator and asserted that he was invested with a divine commission. And in enjoying obedience to it, after having conducted them to the borders of Canaan, he promises many blessings to accompany their compliance with the law and denounces grievous judgments that would overtake them for the breach of it. The history of the Jews in each succeeding age attests the truth of the last prophetic warning of the first of their rulers. 
but too lengthened to detail would be requisite for its elucidation. Happily, it contains predictions applicable to more recent events, which admit not of any ambiguous interpretation and refer to historical facts that admit no cavil. <clears throat> he founded their government, foretold, notwithstanding the intervention of so many ages, the manner of its over overthrow, while they were wandering in the wilderness without a city and without a home, he threatened them with the destruction of their cities and the devastation of their country. Remember, Deuteronomy 28, that's what that's about. Leviticus 26, that's what that's about. It's part of the curses of the covenant. And too many preachers want to focus on God's blessing, and they never want to talk about his cursings when people are disobedient. While they viewed for the first time the land of Palestine, and when victorious and triumphant, they were about to possess it. Now, I'm going to see if I can blow this up for you guys, because I'm sure those whoops, those of you who are um, watching uh, by way of Rumble, you're wanting to see this a little better. So I hope that's probably a little better for you if you're trying to read this. Um, did I jump? I, I think I just went past where I was supposed to go. <laughs> okay. So, uh, he says, while they viewed for the first time the land of Palestine and when victorious and triumphant, they were about to possess it, he represented the scene of desolation that it would exhibit to their vanquished and enslaved posterity on their last departure from it. Ere they themselves had entered it as enemies. He describes those enemies by whom their descendants were to be subjected, subjugated, excuse me, and dispossessed, though they were to arise from a very distant region. And although they did not appear till after a millenary and a half of years, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young, and he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed. This is Deuteronomy 28 is what he's quoting, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy kind, or flocks <clears throat> of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until the high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. Each particular of this prophecy, though it be only introductory to others, has met its full completion. Do you get that? Deuteronomy 28 is part of the covenant, and it's a prophecy of what God will do. And he says, it's been brought to completion. The remote situation of the Romans, the rapidity of their march, the very emblem of their arms, their unknown language and warlike appearance, the indiscriminate cruelty and unsparing pillage which they exercised towards the persons and the property of the Jews could scarcely have been represented in more descriptive terms. Vespasian, Adrian, and Julius Severus removed with, with part of their armies from Britain to Palestine the extreme points of the Roman world. The eagle was the standard of their armies, and the utmost activity and expedition were displayed in the reduction of Judea. They were a nation of fierce countenance, a race distinct from the effeminate Asiatic troops. At Gadara and Gamala, Throughout many parts of the Roman Empire and in repeated instances at Jerusalem itself, the slaughter of the Jews was indiscriminate without distinction of age or sex. 
The inhabitants were enslaved and banished, all their possessions confiscated, and the kingdom of Israel, humbled at first into a province of the Roman Empire, became at last the private property of the emperor. Throughout all the land of Judea, every city was besieged and taken, and their high and fenced walls were raised from the foundation. But the prophet particularizes incidents the most shocking to humanity, which marked the utmost possible extremity of want and wretchedness. The last act to which famine could prompt despair, and the last subject of a prediction that could have been uttered by man, quote, And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and thy daughters, in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee, so that the man that is tender among you, and very delicate, his eye shall be evil toward his brother, and toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the remnant of his children, whom he shall leave, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children, whom he shall eat, because he hath nothing left him in the siege and in the straightness, wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in all thy gates, the tender and the delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom, and toward her son, and toward her daughter, and toward her young one, and toward her children which she shall bear. For she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege and straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. End quote. No commentator nor careful reader of Scripture and of Jewish history could fail to observe the repeated instances of the fulfillment of this striking and awful prediction. When Samaria, then the capital of Israel, was besieged by all the hosts of the kings of the king of Syria, an ass's head was sold for eighty pieces of silver. When Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And Josephus, and by the way, uh, the person who was asking about secular accounts of these kind, I, I recommend you read Josephus. Read Josephus and what he has to say. There was some crazy stuff going on. Chariots racing across the sky. Voices coming out that were not the voice of men coming out of the temple. All kinds of just, I mean, the wrath of God was being poured out without mixture on Jerusalem. No question about it. No question about it. And Josephus in his history of the Jewish war relates the direful calamities of the Jews in their last siege before they ceased to have a city. The famine was too powerful for all other passions, for what was otherwise reverenced was in this case, this case despised. Children snatched the food out of their very mouths of their fathers, and even mothers, overcoming the tenderest feelings of nature, took from their perishing infants the last morsels that could sustain their lives. In every house where there was the least shadow of food, a contest arose. And the nearest relatives struggled with each other for the miserable means of subsistence. He adds a most revolting detail. While in all these cases the eye of man was thus evil towards his brother in the siege, and in the straightness wherewith their enemies distressed them, the unparalleled inhuman compact between the two women of Samaria, the bitter lamentation of Jeremiah over the miseries of the siege which he witnessed, quote, the hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They were their meat 
in the destruction of the daughter of my people, end quote. And harrowing recital by Josephus of the noble lady killing with her own hands and eating secretly her own suckling, the discovery of which struck even the whole suffering city with horror. Can you imagine a siege coming in which you are so hungry and so desperate that you would turn and eat your children? I mean, can you even imagine that? I just... <sighs> which all recorded as facts without the least allusion to the prediction. To faithfully realize to the very letter the dread denunciations of the prophet when any well-authenticated facts of so singular and appalling a nature were predicted for ages, uh, over a thousand years, before they happened. They could not possibly have been revealed but by inspiration from that omniscience which alone can foresee the termination of the iniquities of nations. Moses and the other prophets foretold also that the Jews would be left few in number, that they would be slain before their enemies, that the pride of their power would be broken, and that their cities would be laid waste, that they would be destroyed and brought to naught, plucked from off the land, sold for slaves, and that none would buy them, that their high places were to be desolate and their bones to be scattered around their altars, that Jerusalem was to be encamped round about, to be besieged with a mount, to have forts raised against it, and to be plowed over as a field, and to become heaps, that the end was to come upon it, and that the Lord would judge them according to their ways, and recompense them for all their abominations, the sword without, and the pestilence, and the famine within, quote, he that is in the field shall die with the sword, and he that is in the city famine and pestilence shall devour him, end quote. These predictions, which are recorded in the Pentateuch and in the subsequent prophecies, according with the minute um, prophetic narrative which Jesus gave of the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem, which is in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark, 31, Mark 13, excuse me. Jesus gave of the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. Any adequate delineation of it alone would far surpass the limits of this treatise, but the subject has been fully and frequently illustrated, and the prediction harmonizes so completely with the unimpeachable testimony of the impartial historians. And Josephus was not a believer. He was a Jew. He's a Jewish general. He wasn't a believer. That it is merely necessary for the elucidation of its truth to compare the prophetic description with the historical fact. And he points out, the particular parts of the whole discourse, which have admirably illustrated by many learned commentators, Christian writers have always, with great reason, represented Josephus' history of the Jewish war as the best commentary on this chapter, which is Matthew 24. And many have justly remarked it as a wonderful instance of the care of providence for the Christian church, that he, an eyewitness of these things and of so great credit, should, especially in such an extraordinary manner, be preserved to transmit to us a collection of important facts which so exactly illustrate this noble prophecy in almost every circumstance. No author, perhaps, has been more frequently quoted on any subject than Josephus on this. His history of the wars of the Romans with the Jews, having been for many ages the common property of the Christian church, which you can get online or you can buy a hard, hard copy for, I don't know, 14 or 15 bucks, I think, 
of Amazon, if that's what you want to get, you can pick it up. I highly recommend putting that in your library as well. In illustration of the prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, these prophecies were quoted and illustrated by Eusebius above 1,500 years ago. After giving a tragic summary from the fifth and sixth books of Josephus' history of the miseries sustained from famine during the siege, he emphatically and justly states that if anyone compares the words of Christ with Josephus' narrative of the whole war, he cannot but admire the wonderful prescience and prophecy of Christ and confess they were truly divine and exceedingly wonderful. In other words, Christ was not a liar. Those things came upon that generation. So fully and frequently has the subject been illustrated as stated in every edition of this treatise that any studious Christian at all versant in the subject could be at no loss to form from the works of various writers in past ages a volume of coincident illustrations of the same predictions from the same authorities. It may be here suffice to mention that the names of Eusebius, Grotius, Tillamont, um, and besides frequent allusions in his discourses and parables, the predictions of Christ concerning Jerusalem are recorded at length by three of the evangelists. He goes on and he says, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are admitted by the Apostle John. He's the only one who doesn't have a Olivet Discourse. This is why many, when they go to the book of Revelation, they believe this is John's Olivet Discourse in a vision form. That's why many people believe that. In whose writing alone, from the age to which he lived, their insertion could have been suspicious. They were delivered to the disciples of Christ and answered to those direct questions which they put in their surprise and alarm at his declaration of the fate of the temple. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of them and at the end of the world? That's what the disciples asked Jesus, remember? The reply embraces all the subjects of the query and is equally circumstantial and distinct. The death of Christ happened 37 years previous to the destruction of Jerusalem. But the unanimous testimony of antiquity, the three Gospels were published, and at least two of the evangelists were dead several years before that event. Copies of the Gospels were disseminated so extensively and rapidly. See, this is something, too. You have modern-day people saying, oh, well, the Gospels weren't written two or three hundred years after Christ. Nonsense. We have, we have bits and pieces of of original, or not original, copies of the text of the original from the first century. And people say all these massive changes were going on. No, they really weren't. You can go back and see it. We've got it. We've got over, my understanding was over 5,000 manuscripts or copy pieces of manuscript from the scriptures, from the New Testament that uphold this. So, so we know nothing major, there was nothing major changed. So this testimony is there. He says, copies of the gospel were disseminated so extensively and rapidly that any deceit must have been instantaneously detected by the powerful, the numerous, and watchful enemies of the cross. And the evidence of the prior publicity of the gospels was so strong that it remained unchallenged by Julian, uh, Porphyry, or by Celsus. The authenticity of the prophecy thus rests on sure grounds, and the facts in which it received its accomplishment are incontestable. Josephus was one of the Jackson Poole Patrick 
Tillotson. Wait, okay, that's part of what we finished up a minute ago. I shouldn't have read that. I knew it was a a footnote, and I apologize for that. I, I in in injected that there. Most distinguished generals in the commencement of the Jewish war. He was an eyewitness of the facts, which he records. He appeals to Vespasian and to Titus for the truth of his history. And again, I get it. The victors always write the history. I get it. Okay. But he's writing these things. And what he's doing is he's confirming the words of the Lord Jesus in here. So he goes on. He says, it received the singular attestation of the subscription of the latter to its accuracy. It was published while the facts were recent and notorious, and the extreme carefulness with which he avoids the mention of the name of Christ. And in the history of the Jewish war is not less remarkable than the great precision with which he describes the events that verify his predictions. Not a few of the transactions are also related to Tacitus, Suetonius, Philostratus, and Dion Cassius. The different prophecies of Christ respecting Jerusalem may be condensed into a single view. Quote, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall all these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And the time draws near, and ye shall hear of wars, and rumors of wars, commotions. These things must first come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse, diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights. And great signs shall there be from heaven. And by the way, you can see all this stuff starting in the book of Acts. All of these things are in the book of Acts. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. But before all these things, shall they lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before the kings and rulers of my, for my name's sake, and many shall be offended. Ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death, and ye shall be hated by all men of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish, and many false prophets will arise and will deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And the gospel must be first published among all nations, and then shall the end come. Well, see there, Tim, it says this, the end's not going to come to the gospel, uh, goes out to all the nations. Yeah, read the book of Colossians. I believe it's twice in there it says we, we've already preached to every creature under heaven. It's already done that by the time Paul writes that. It's already went out through all the world. The end of what? The end of the old covenant. That's what we talked about yesterday. When ye therefore shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies and the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place and where it ought not, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. Let him which is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. Neither let him that is in the field turn back again to take, a gar take up his garment. For these are the days of vengeance. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? Is God's vengeance upon a disobedient people, the people who killed his own son. They not only killed the prophets, they killed Jesus, the Son of God. These are the days of vengeance. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there will be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led captive into all nations. There shall be great tribulation, such was not from the beginning of the world to this time, no nor ever shall be. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. I, again, I ask, is Jesus a liar? He says all these things are going to be fulfilled in that generation. Not a future generation, that one. And I, I think we have to ask ourselves that question. It was Jesus telling the truth or he wasn't? If we divide that up, then we are not letting Jesus be a truth teller. We're not letting him be the truth. We are making him out to be a liar. And I say, let all of us be liars and let God be truthful. I'm going to stick with what Scripture says here. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, fill ye up the measure of your fathers. Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. All these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. Now, you know, he's quoting Matthew, Matthew 23, obviously. And stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. This is the Romans when they laid siege and compass thee around and keep thee on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. These prophecies from the Old Testament and from the New repel the charge of ambiguity. They are equally copious and clear. History attests the truth of each and all of them, and a recapitulation of them forms an enumeration of the facts. False Christs appeared. Simon Magus boasted that he was some great one. Remember him? And then when Peter comes down, he's like, oh, how, how do I buy the, the Holy Spirit you guys have? Because and, and Peter's like, you perish with your money. Go and repent, man. The Scythius, the Samaritan, pretended that he was the lawgiver prophesied of by Moses. Thutis, promising the performance of a miracle, persuaded a great multitude to follow him to Jordan and deceive many. See, there were a lot of these Jim Jones and, and uh, David Koresh's and all these kind of people. They were, they were there back then. The country was filled with imposters and deceivers. 
who induced the people to follow them into the wilderness. Their credulity became the punishment of their previous skepticism. And in one instance, the tumult was so great that the soldiers took 200 prisoners and slew twice that number. There were wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, arose against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The Jews resisted the erection of the statue of Caligula in the temple. Hmm. Can you say abomination of desolation? And such was the dread of Rome, Roman resentment that the fields remain uncultivated. At Caesarea, the Jews and the Syrians contended for the mastery of the city. 20,000 of the former were put to death and the rest were expelled. Every city in Syria was then divided into two armies and multitudes were slaughtered. Alexandria and Damascus presented a similar scene of bloodshed. About 50,000 of the Jews fell in the former and 10,000 in the latter. The Jewish nation rebelled against the Romans. Italy was convulsed with contentions for the empire. And as a proof of the troubles and warlike character of the period, within the brief space of two years, four emperors, Nero, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, suffered death. There were famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. In the reign of Claudius Caesar, there were different famines. They continued to be severe for several years throughout the land of Judea. Pestilence succeeded, succeeded them. In the same reign, there were earthquakes at Rome, at Apamea, and at Crete. In that of Nero, there was an earthquake in Campania, and another in which Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae were overthrown, and others are recorded to have happened in various places before the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The constitution of nature says the Jewish historian, was confounded for the destruction of men, and one might easily conjecture that no common calamities were portended. And there were fearful sights and signs from heaven. Tacitus and Josephus agree in relating and describing events so surprising and supernatural that their narrative perfectly accords with the previous prediction. And the fact cannot be disputed that whatever these sights were, the minds of men were impressed with the idea that they were indeed signs from heaven. And even this could never have been foreseen by man. There is surely something at least unaccountable in their prediction and in their relation by historians, unprejudiced and unfriendly to the cause which their testimony supports. The disciples of Jesus were persecuted, imprisoned, afflicted, and hated of all nations for his namesake, and many of them were put to death. Peter, Simon, and Jude were uh, crucified. Paul was beheaded. Matthew, Thomas, James, um, Math Matthias, Mark, and Luke were put to death in different countries and in various manners. There was a war against the very name. They were accused of hatred of the human race. Oh, it's just, it's incredible. I'm going to close out the radio show. If you want to hear the rest of this, uh, we've got about six or seven pages, I think, something like that, to go here. If you want to hear that, sonsoflibertymedia.com, top of the page there, beforeitsnews.com, top of the page there, or jump on Rumble with us and jump in the chat. Sons of Liberty Radio Live is the channel. Talk to you there. Bradley be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern, and Lord willing, we'll be back with you in the morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. Talk to you then. See you. Okay, I want to welcome everybody who's coming over from Red State Talk Radio, and uh, let's get back to this so that... You know, we can we can finish up. But I, I hope that this is beneficial to you. Some people will not read a book and I don't this is definitely not on audio. So maybe we could make an audio book by it if I can get time to do that. But I know a lot of people are unable to really sit down with a book. So we'll, we'll take this time and, and give this information. And I'm happy to do that. I just got to wet my whistle here just a little bit. Ah, 
mouth gets really dry doing this. So, let's pick up where we were. The prejudices and interest of the supporters of paganism were everywhere against them. And in one memorable instance, Nero, to screen himself from the guilt of being the incendiary of his capital, accused the innocent but hated Christians of that atrocious deed and inflicted upon them the most excruciating tortures. He made their sufferings a spectacle and a sport to the Romans. To compensate for his disappointment in not trampling on the ashes of Rome, as well as to cloak his iniquity, the monster, for the man and the monarch were both laid aside, gratified his savage lust of cruelty by the substitution of one feast for another. He selected the Christians for his victims from the general odium under which they lay, and, they are, and their very name became the warrant for that selection and sufficed to sanction the infliction of unheard of barbarities. Many shall be offended and shall betray one another, and the love of many shall wax cold. The apostle of the Gentiles often complained of false brethren, that many turned away from him, and that he stood alone, forsaken by all, when he first appeared before Nero. And Tacitus testifies that very many were convicted on the evidence of others who had previously been accused. But the gospel was published throughout the world in defiance of all peril and persecution. In the age of the apostles, epistles were addressed to Christians at Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, and in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. After Christ delivered this prophecy, he was in a little time forsaken by all his disciples and put to death as a criminal. At their first assembly, they were a little flock. The number of the names together was about 120. And up unpromising as the prospect was, a few fishermen of, Gal of Galilee, aided afterwards by a tent maker of Tarsus, circum... Uh, circumscribed not their labors in the preaching of the gospel by the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Could the reception or the fate of Christ himself have warranted such a conclusion? Did ever any cause triumph by such means? Or was there any cause opposed like his? And could anything be more unlikely to have been clearly foreseen and positively affirmed? All these events preceded the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the end of that city was at hand, just like Jesus said it was. The signs of its approaching ruin are given as a warning to depart from it. Jerusalem was encompassed with armies. Remember, Jesus says, get up and go and flee into the mountains when you see that. The Roman armies with their idolatrous ensigns, uh, or ensigns, which were an abomination to the Jews, surrounded it. But instead of being a signal for flight, this would naturally have implied the impossibility of escape, and the warning would have been in vain. Yet, the words of Jesus did not deceive his disciples. Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, besieged Jerusalem, but immediately after, contrary to all human probability, an interval was given for escape. He suddenly and causelessly retreated. It wasn't causelessly. It's... Look. God knows how to care for his people. And he warned. Okay? He warned. He suddenly and causelessly retreated. Though some of the chief men of the city had offered to open him the gates, Josephus acknowledges that the utmost consternation prevailed among the besieged, and that the city would infallibly have been taken. And he attributes it 
to the just vengeance of God, that the city and the sanctuary were not then taken and the war terminated at once. He relates also how many of the most illustrious inhabitants departed from the city as from a sinking vessel, and how upon the approach of Vespasian afterwards, multitudes fled from Jericho into the mountainous country, thither and to the city of Pella, fled all the disciples of Jesus, and amidst all the seceding calamities, not a hair of their heads did perish. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the world to this time, no nor shall no nor ever shall be. There shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. These are the days of vengeance. Such are some of the words of Jesus relative to the destruction of Jerusalem, and all the previous prophecies regarding it were of the same sad import. The particulars of the siege are all related by Josephus and form a detail of miseries that admit not of exaggeration, and which he repeatedly declares in terms that entirely accord with the language of prophecy, are altogether unequaled in the history of the world. No general description can give a just idea of calamities, the most terrible that ever nation suffered. The Jews had assembled in their city from all the surrounding country to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was crowded with inhabitants when they were all imprisoned within its walls. The Passover, which was commemorative of their first great deliverance, had collected them for the last signal, destruction. Before any external enemy appeared, the fiercest dissensions prevailed. The blood of thousands was shed by their brethren. They destroyed and burned in their frenzy their common provisions for the siege. They were destitute of any regular government and divided into three factions. On the extirpation of one of these, each of the others contended for the mastery. The most ferocious and fanatic, the robbers or zealots, as they are indiscriminately called, prevailed at last. They entered the temple under the pretense of offering sacrifices and carried concealed weapons for the purpose of assassination. They slew the priests at the very altar, and their blood, instead of that of the victims for sacrifice, flowed around it. They afterwards rejected all terms of peace with the enemy. None were suffered to escape from the city. Every house was entered. Every article of uh, subsistence was pillaged, and the most wanton barbarities were committed. Nothing could restrain their fury wherever there was the appearance or scent of food. The human bloodhounds tracked it out. And though a general famine raged around, though they were ever trampling on the dead, and though the habitations for the... I mean, you got you to gotta see the picture here. There's an account in Josephus where he says there was this long stretch of dead bodies and blood that you could not step anywhere without stepping on a body or stepping in blood. The, the, it was just covered. You got to get the picture of what went on here. It's absolutely incredible what God did to these covenant breakers. Absolutely incredible. You said, well, the Romans did it. Yep, they're his army. They're his army to bring judgment. He said so, Deuteronomy 20. He said what he was going to do. So he goes on, and he says, um, <clears throat> They were trampling on the dead, and through the habitations for the living were converted into charnel houses. Nothing could intimidate, <clears throat> excuse me, intimidate or appall or satisfy or shock them till Mary, 
the mother of Eleazar, a lady once rich and noble, displayed to them and offered them all her remaining food, the scent of which had attracted them in their search, the bitterest morsel that ever mother or mortal tasted, the remnant of her half-eaten suckling. Her baby. 60,000 Roman soldiers unremittingly besieged them. They encompassed Jerusalem with a wall and hemmed them in on every side. They brought down their high and fenced walls to the ground. They slaughtered the slaughterers. They spared not the people. They burned the temple in defiance of the commands, the threats, and the resistance of their general. With it, the last hope of all the Jews was extinguished. They raised at the site and universal but an expiring cry of sorrow and despair. 10,000 were there slain, and 6,000 victims were enveloped in its blaze. The whole city, full of the famished dying and of the murdered dead, presented no picture but that of despair, no scene but of horror. The aqueducts and the city sewers were crowded as the last refuge of the hopelessness. 2,000 were found dead there, and many were dragged from thence and slain. The Roman soldiers put all indiscriminately to death and ceased not till they became faint and weary and overpowered with the work of destruction. But they only sheathed the sword to light the torch. They set fire to the city in various places. The flames spread everywhere and were checked, but for a moment by the red streamlets in every street. Jerusalem became heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Within the circuit of a few miles, in the space of five months, foes and famine, pillage and pestilence within, a triple wall around and besieged every moment from without. 1,100,000 human beings perished through the tale of each of them, or excuse me, though the tale of each of them was a tragedy. Was there ever so concentrated a mass of misery? Could any prophecy be more faithfully and awfully fulfilled? The prospect of his own crucifixion when Jesus was on his way to Calvary was not more clearly before him and seemed to affect him less than the fate of Jerusalem. How full of tenderness and fraught with truth was the sympathetic response of the condoling sufferer to the wailings and lamentations of the women who followed him when he turned to them and beheld the city which some of them might yet see wrapped in flames and drenched in blood and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, the days I told you about, that I said would be fulfilled in this generation, in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what shall be done in the dry? No impostor ever betrayed such feelings as a man, nor predicted events so unlikely, astonishing, and true, and as an attestation of a divine commission. Jesus revealed the very judgments of God, for such the instrument by whom it was accomplished interpreted the capture and destruction of Jerusalem, acknowledging that his own power would otherwise have been ineffectual. Sorry, got to wet my whistle again. <clears throat> When eulogized for the victory, Titus disclaimed the praise, affirming that he was only the instrument of executing the sentence of the divine justice. That's kind of interesting. And their own historian asserts, in conformity with every declaration of Scripture upon the subject, that the iniquities of the Jews were as unparalleled as their punishment. <laughs> wow! These are their enemies saying that. They could read what the Jews held to. 
All these prophecies of which we have been reviewing the accomplishment were delivered in a time of perfect peace when the Jews retained their own laws. Remember, peace, peace. And there is no peace. Sudden destruction comes upon them. When the Jews retained their own laws and enjoyed the protection as they were subject to the authority of the Roman Empire, then in the zenith of its power, the wonder excited in the minds of his disciples at the strength and stability of the temple drew forth from Jesus the announcement of its speedy and utter ruin. He foretold the appearance of false Christ and pretended prophets, the wars and rumors of wars, the famines and pestilences, the earthquakes and fearful sights that were to ensue. The persecution of his disciples, the, the, the apostasy of many, the propagation of the gospel, the sign that should warn his disciples to flee from approaching ruin, the encompassing and enclosing of Jerusalem, the grievous affliction of the tender sex, the unequaled miseries of all, the entire destruction of the city, the shortening of their sufferings that still some might be saved, and that all this dread crowd of events, which might well have occupied the progress of ages, was to pass away within the limits of a single generation. None but he who discerns futurity could have foretold and described all these things and their complete and literal fulfillment shows them to be indubitably the revelation of God. But the prophecies also mark minuter facts, if possible, more unlikely to have happened. Jerusalem was to be plowed over as a field to be laid even with the ground of the temple. One stone was not to be left upon another. The Jews were to be few in number, to be led captive into all nations, to be sold for slaves, and none would buy them. And each of these predictions was strictly verified. Titus commanded the whole city and temple to be disobedient to their general. Avarice combined with duty and with resentment. The altar, the temple, and the walls in the city were overthrown from the base in search of the treasures which the Jews beset on every hand by plunderers, had concealed and buried during the siege. Three towers and the remnant of a wall alone stood, the monument and memorial of Jerusalem, and the city was afterwards plowed over by Terentius Rufus. In the siege and in the previous and subsequent destruction of the cities, the villages of Judea, according to the specified enumeration of Josephus, about 1,300,000 suffered death. 1,300,000 suffered death. 97,000 were led into captivity. They were sold for slaves and were so despised and disesteemed that many remained unpurchased. And their conquerors were so prodigal of their lives that in honor of the birthday of Domitian, 2,500 of them were placed in savage sport to contend with wild beasts and otherwise to be put to death. But the miseries of the race were not then at a close. There was a curse on the land that hath scathed it and judgment on the people that scattered them throughout the world. Many prophecies. See, see, this is kind of like Babylon. Get this right here and we'll get right back to this. This is kind of like Babylon. When Israel was judged in the Old Testament, God used his army. He called Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army his army. He used them to chastise and judge the people of Israel. Then he judged Babylon because their intents were wicked. Yeah, God was using them for good, but their intents were wicked. That's how he can hold them accountable. Yes, they were, they were performing his decree. No question about that. 
but their intents were wicked against the people. Okay, Same thing here with the Romans. Many prophecies respecting them yet remain to be considered, and much of their history is yet untold. The prophecies are as clear as the facts are visible. And this is another <clears throat> deal here, a footnote, so I'm not going to read that one. I, I read the other one, and it was kind of off. So that kind of that kind of ends. Well, well, let's go ahead and read that since we're here at the end. Tacitus, who flourished about 30 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, speaks of the strength of the fortifications of that city, the immense riches and strength of the temple, the factions that raged during the siege, as well as of the prodigies that preceded its fall. And he particularly mentions the large army brought by Vespasian to subdue Judea, a fact which shows the magnitude and importance of the expedition. Philostratus particularly relates that Titus declared after the capture of Jerusalem that he was not worthy of the crown of victory as he had only lent his hand to the execution of a work in which God was pleased to manifest his anger. Dion Cassius records the conquest of Judea by Titus and Vespasian, the obstinate, the bloody resistance of the Jews during the siege, and the destruction of the temple by fire. It is recorded by uh, Mamenides and in the Jewish Talmud and as cited by Bosnage and Lardner, that Terentius Rufus, an officer in the Roman army, tore up with a plowshare the foundations of the temple, the triumphal arch of Titus. I mean, you got to understand, these the, the stones the temple was built with came from another area. They were huge. And they're just running a plowshare through the foundations of the temple, tearing it up. The triumphal arch of Titus commemorative of the destruction of Jerusalem and with figures of Roman soldiers bearing on their shoulders the holy vessels of the temple is still to be seen at Rome. Now I go back and I ask you, what did Jesus say? Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That's right there together. That's the context. And I ask you, friend, is Jesus telling a lie or is he telling the truth? Some people say, well, there's a breakup here and he's talking about 70 AD, but then he jumps to the future. Where does that happen at? Well, because we don't see certain things. Well, Jesus said it's going to happen in that generation. Sorry, that's what he says. Please explain to me. If you disagree, what Jesus means by this generation shall not pass till all the, these things be fulfilled, all the things he's spoken about. There's 33 verses before that, and the context continues on from there. By the way, I hear people talking about, oh, we're in the days of Noah. You know, people are messing with genetics and all this stuff. And, you know, they talk about angels having sex with women. Nonsense. That's not what goes on. Let me tell you, the context tells you what the days of Noah are. Are you ready for this? This is just a couple of verses down. Because he says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. Nobody knew when this was going to happen. They, they, they weren't aware of that. But Jesus told his disciples, you be on the lookout for the army surrounding Jerusalem and you get out. And they did. No Christians were in the city. No believers, no followers of Christ were in the city when siege was laid to it. They got out. They were warned of the Lord and they obeyed him. Nobody knew when it was going to happen. It just came on them like that. 
And then he says, but as the days of Noah or Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Is, is, is genetic manipulation or the angels coming down having sex with women or there any of this stuff? No. He says, for as in the days that were before the flood, those are the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You want to know what the days of Noah are like? Just like any other day. Just like any other day. For 120 years, Noah is out there preaching and building an ark, gathering up animals, putting the pitch on the inside and outside of the ark so it doesn't sink, so it doesn't leak. And the people are carrying on, marrying, giving in marriage, eating and drinking, living their lives like they've always lived them. Until the flood came and took them all away. And the people of Jerusalem were carrying on, living their lives, eating and drinking, giving in marriage, doing their normal thing. Until the day that the Romans seized the city. Same thing. That's all in the context. I don't know how people get out there with all kinds of stuff they bring in and they start getting off into just some weird and strange things. And I'm not trying to cap on people. I know people teach this stuff. And we suck it in instead of going to the text and staying in the context and letting the context tell us what we should believe and then believing it. I don't see anywhere in here where there's dual prophecy fulfillment. I don't see any of that stuff because Jesus doesn't say anything about that at all. He said, these things are coming upon this generation. Now, I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe the Lord's words? He said them. I didn't. There have been many people who have heard the words of Christ here, and they've read Josephus and others, and they've seen the fulfillment, and they're like, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of all men. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm going to bow my knee to him. I've read several testimonies of people who've read the prophecies here, and they've gotten away from the Jack Van Impies and the Hal Lindsays and the people like that, and they said, Jesus said this, and it came to pass, and I can see it, and I can verify it, and I know he tells the truth. Let God be true, and every man a liar, including this guy. Okay? Including me. But you see it in the context. I hope that reading that chapter might spur you on to do a little further study in things. Uh, pick up the book on Josephus. Read what went on. Verify it for yourself. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to believe what he says here. You have to believe his word. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. You've, I, don't, I don't know how a Christian can say, I don't believe all that happened in that generation. Well, then you don't believe the word that Jesus says. I, I, just, I, don't, I don't know how to say it any other way. And I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm just saying... He said it. I didn't. I didn't take anything out of context. And it isn't just Matthew. Luke says it. Jesus talks about his coming on the clouds. 
And that generation, the people that he spoke to, that he spoke those words, he says, you're going to see it. Oh, well, they'll see it because they're dead and they're going to be raised. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, you're going to see it. He, he's telling the disciples, you're going to see these things. And when you see this happen, get out. It, it, is he expecting them to be dead? I'm sure some, obviously some of them were put to death. But is he expecting all of them to be dead? No, they're going to see it. I mean, we read from Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. Verily I say unto you, there will be some standing which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Is Jesus lying? Or is he telling the truth? Did the kingdom come with him coming? Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. It's incredible to me. It's so plain. And yeah, I don't have all the answers of everything. I'm not claiming that. But I do believe the words of Jesus, and I believe what he said would happen at that time happened. And as we talked about yesterday, the whole thing for that was to close out the old covenant that he might establish the new. And now instead of him just being you know, seen as, instead of God just being seen, Yahweh being seen as just the king of Israel or as Jesus was labeled the king of the Jews, he's king of the nations. And the nations are called to bow before the king and they're called to kiss the son lest he be angry. Psalm 2 verse 10. But what did the nations do? The nations say, no, 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 we'll not have this man to rule over us, and they want to break his bonds. They want to, they want to break his bonds. Listen, it is up to us as Christians not to just be forgiven of our sin. It is for us to push the crown rights of King Jesus like those who came before us a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, in establishing what God had set up, and that is that Jesus is king, he's the only king, and only his law applies. Period. And boy, you're talking about liberty instead of the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of laws that man have made thinking they're better than God, setting themselves up as gods. We would be under the law of God. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. And there was a people who experienced that. They experienced the peace, the prosperity, the justice, the real equality of men under that. Isn't that what the law says? Proclaim liberty throughout the land under the law. Not man's law, but the law of the Creator, the true God, the true lawgiver. And you know what? The fact of the matter is men have broken His law, they have spurned His law, they have trampled on it, they indulge in it, they love breaking God's law, and God says, I've had enough I've overlooked this in times past, but now every man is commanded to repent. Christ has given himself as a sacrifice for sinners or transgressors or lawbreakers, however you want to put that. You've broken God's law, whoever you are. You're in need of a Savior, but that Savior is also your King. Whether you submit to Him now or you submit to Him in the future, as you enter into his presence in eternity, the Bible says you're going to bow your knee. Every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the master to the glory of God the Father. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
bow your knee to the king and follow hard after him, you will see the results. You will see. You will taste that the Lord is good. You will. And he'll lead you into victory. Not only in your personal life, I believe he's, he's called us into battle. And that is to be this city on the hill in which we submit ourselves to our one and only king. And it isn't, it isn't a man on this earth. It is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, I hope you have a great day. Bradley be with you at three. And we'll continue some of this. I, this is kind of on my on my mind a little bit. So we'll we'll try to continue some of this uh, maybe in the couple coming shows. Uh, pick some passages here. But keep that in mind. I just want you to, I end with this. Go right back here. Verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you, this is the words of the Lord. This generation shall not pass to all these things. What things? The things that he's been talking about be fulfilled. And you're going to have to come to grips with that. Is what he said, did it happen or did it not happen? Do you believe the words of Jesus or do you not? And I'm not saying that some of these things aren't hard to figure out. But that's the question I'm going to leave you with. Bradley, be with you at 3, and then Lord, we're going to talk to you in the morning at 6 a.m., bright and early. See you then.